0: Chapter 1, Section 1 of the Westminster Confession of Faith says, Although the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable, yet they are not sufficient to give that knowledge of God and of His will which is necessary unto salvation. Therefore it pleased the Lord at sundry times and in diverse manners to reveal Himself and to declare that, His will, unto His church. And afterwards, for the better preserving and propagating of the truth and for the more sure establishment and comfort of the church against the corruption of the flesh and the malice of Satan and of the world to commit the same holy writing, which makes the Holy Scripture to be most necessary, those former ways of God's revealing His will unto His people being now ceased. We are going to look at one of the key verses about the cessation of Revelation today, we'll also be reviewing 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I provided for you an outline of 1 Corinthians, which you haven't seen before because I haven't really given you handouts for 1 Corinthians. And so you have an outline there, and right now we are in the middle of the section called section 5 that deals with food and public order issues. The food issues have been mostly uh, complete it, and all the things we looked at, and the public order portion we're in the middle of. And so those things kind of interweave, or else they'd be broken up. And the reason they're interwoven is because they follow a similar pattern, where an issue gets brought up in a way that's meant to be agreed to by the people who are receiving the message, and then, because there are parts that they don't know yet and don't necessarily agree to, that's a setup for a trap, so that then they're stuck in agreeing with the position that Paul is showing them they haven't been acting in accordance with. And so we're in the middle of that, and I'll show you that as it relates to the public order issues regarding men and women later on when we get to the next chapter, chapter 14. That's where we are now. So the text of 1 Corinthians 12, and it has through 14 written there. It's actually just through 13. If you look at the first part, it says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, whenever you see spiritual I want you to think Holy Spirit. It's regrettable that it's lowercase. It's regrettable that it's lowercase. It's of the Spirit. These are gifts of the Spirit. Now concerning spiritual gifts, these aren't like you know, spiritual in some vague sense. Right? These, aren't, these aren't just gifts that happen to be in various spirits. These aren't, these aren't like something from Avatar the Last Airbender. These are gifts from the Holy Spirit. And so we have concerning Holy Spirit gifts, brethren. I do not want you to be ignorant you know that when you were Gentiles, carried away to these dumb idols, like right, dumb is in like they don't speak, they're mute. However, you were led. Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God calls Jesus accursed or anathema, and no one can say that Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Remember, that is not saying that if you confess that, holy, that that Jesus is Lord, that you're saved. It's saying that nobody can say that apart from the Holy Spirit empowering them to do it, even if they're doing it hypocritically, like Judas. And so you do that hypocritically, it's still empowered by the Holy Spirit to do. And so we have spiritual gifts that we have a God who speaks versus dumb idols. And we have speaking, and we're being given some basics here to be able to discern the spirits to be able to tell if somebody is speaking in a manner that aligns with the Holy Spirit's revelation or if it's against it and so the affirming of the authority of Christ versus the denouncing of Christ is an example and it's not the only thing any denial of what Jesus says constitutes a a cursing of Jesus it is blasphemy against him And it is something that is a denial of his lordship. But the acknowledgement of his lordship is to acknowledge all of the words that he says. To view them as authoritative. And so, we move into verse 4. There are diversities of gifts, but the same spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. And there are diversities of activities, but it is the same God who works all in all. Works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So, the first point would be that we have one Lord with a diversity of gifts, ministries, and activities. Gifts, ministries, and activities. So, a gift would be a particular power, a ministry would be a role to fill, and activities would be things that you do. And so, the manifestation of the Spirit exists in all of those things. And all of those things are given for the profit of all. That's a practical unity. So we have a unity of doctrine that is taught by the Holy Spirit giftings for teaching. We have a unity of purpose to glorify God, which is the purpose of all things. And we have a practical unity where we are learning to use our diverse gifts, ministries, and activities in a way that helps to accomplish that goal, in a way that works together, so that there's a division of labor. So that division of labor is not a cacophony of action, but a symphony that works together to accomplish a joint objective. So we have spiritual gifts lifted out now. And the list of these gifts, I have labeled them as ceased or ongoing. Maybe I can get one of you to fight me about one of those at dinner. I don't know. That'd be fun. And so we have the list here of which ones are ongoing and which ones have ceased. And typically... The first two, depending on the commentator you're reading, are going to be things that people say either both continue or both cease. And I take a weird position that the word of wisdom continues, but the word of knowledge ceases. And the reason I take that position is because the word of knowledge relates to chapter 13, verse 8, which says that knowledge passes away. It's necessary that there be something that is knowledge that passes away in order for that verse to mean anything. And since it's not teaching us that we stop knowing things and enter into a thoughtless nirvana, right? that is plainly not the teaching of Scripture. What it is teaching instead is that there's something with the label of knowledge, I would suggest it's the word of knowledge, that ends. And the word of knowledge, therefore, is a revelatory gift. And so that is the thing that passes away. The word of wisdom, however, is simply an acknowledging of the truth of God and of the law. There's the acknowledging of the gospel and of the law. And so we continue to speak wisdom, and Paul has said that early on. In the beginning of the book of 1 Corinthians, he says that we speak wisdom, not men's wisdom, but we speak the Holy Spirit's wisdom. And so both things are dealt with. You have the word of wisdom early on in the book of 1 Corinthians, and you have the word of knowledge later on in chapter 13, And the word of knowledge has ceased, and the word of wisdom continues. And the word of wisdom is also what we see in the book of Proverbs, for example. And so you can think about how it requires gift of the Holy Spirit to use wisdom well when we think about the proverb that says, a proverb in the mouth of a fool is like a leg on a lame man. It's not useful. And so we think about the word of wisdom and how there's a Holy Spirit gift necessary for the right use of it. Whereas the word of knowledge is a continued revelatory gift. Faith as a gift is obviously ongoing, but we are reminded here that it's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Healings, a supernatural gift to remove sickness, that has ceased. What is not ceased, what is not ceased is praying for sickness. What is not ceased is the commandment in James for elders to anoint with oil and to lay hands on and to pray. And to do these things in the name of Jesus, asking for God to heal. The fact that the gift of healings has stopped does not mean supernatural healing has stopped. All healing comes by the providence of God. And when we pray and God blesses the healing, that is a supernatural work. And so that continues. But the gift of healing, where particular persons have powers that are given to them to heal, has ceased. The working of miracles... Miracles are, by definition, supernatural signs and wonders. They are signs because they point to the message or the messenger or both. They are wonders because they draw attention. And so miracles, you can look at the root of the word, mira, which is to look. In Spanish, you see that in Latin, the root there, the idea of looking. And so it's something that draws attention. It is a sign to be looked at. And so that has ceased because there are no more messengers bringing revelatory information that's new. Prophecy has ceased. That is the gift of bringing words that are new from God. The discerning of spirits is ongoing, and you're using it right now. And you're trying to figure out whether what I'm saying is good or not. Tongues. The supernatural ability to speak prophecy in some other language that has ceased the interpretation of tongues is a supernatural ability to understand and translate, and that has ceased. These are revelatory gifts. They are referenced as being ceased in chapter 13. One spirit gives these many gifts and many ministries to use them in, and causes these activities to be performed in their proper place in history and in the world. So, we we'll go to page 3. Verse 12. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body, being many, are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact, the body is not one member, but many. So we have two analogies here. It might not seem like it, but there are two analogies here. The first analogy is the analogy about Christ and the fact that we are members of Christ's body. And so you think about that, we're all familiar with that. You know, The Apostle Paul, for example, when the Lord Jesus Christ called him, he said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? You know, Paul could have said, I'm not persecuting you, I'm persecuting Christians. But the point was that they are the body of Christ. And so in the persecution of Christians, there is... A mystical union. There is a revealed union. There is a linguistic union. There is a covenantal union between Christ and His church. And so that revealed union, that union that was once hidden, that's now revealed, that union makes it so that we can say that we are one body. We're Christ's body. Many members. There's a single physical body with its members. But the second analogy is in verse 13. For it says, by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. And here, even though there's a relationship, right? you can think about the relationship of of Christ's body with the church as a political sort of entity. I mean political in the broad sense. Not that it's the state. Not that it has the sword. But in the sense that it's a city. It's a polis. So as a social organization, it was common in ancient writings, to refer to a political body or a social body. And so, being baptized by one spirit into this body, we think about the fact that baptism is an entry ritual that makes it so that you enter into a social body. Now, there's this language here that talks about by one spirit we're baptized into one body. And so, there's debate about is this just saying that the Holy Spirit has a linguistic union with baptism because we think about how sacraments relate to the work of the Holy Spirit and pouring out. Or is this talking about the Holy Spirit baptism and not the baptism with water? Which one is it talking about? And so the answer is yes. This is talking about both. It's talking about how when you have the sacrament of baptism, it points to the Holy Spirit baptism. Shocker. And so when you do that, when you are baptized with water... You are baptized visibly into the city of God. And at the same time, also, when you are given faith by the baptism of the Holy Spirit, then also you are given powers, gifts by the Holy Spirit. And you are given one of those gifts when the Holy Spirit causes you to believe is the gift of faith that makes you have a unity. So you have an intellectual unity and there is a legal unity that exists with. Holy Spirit baptism, and with the physical baptism. So for by one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. And you can see that the discussion here about a body is talking about a body politic, a, a social order, because it starts to talk about nations and stations. Nations and stations. Jews and Greeks, same body. Slave and free, same body. Nations and stations is a common theme that Paul goes to when he's talking about the new social order created by Christ and created by the Spirit of God in the church. So for by one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. And so that is obviously pointing to the idea of the Lord's Supper. Now, in the Lord's Supper, we can grow in terms of our possession of Holy Spirit gifts, and we can grow in our possession of faith. As we remember that visible word and think upon it, and the Holy Spirit is the one that nurtures. Verse 14, for in fact the body is not one member but many. So we have a unity of body and we have a distinctiveness of members, a distinctiveness of parts, a unity of body. And so we work together, and you think about the way in which the hands, the feet, the various parts of the body work together for the good of the body. And that is the analogy we're to be drawn into. So verse fifteen goes into that. If the foot should say, "Because I am not a hand, I am not of the body," is it therefore not of the body? And what is the function of a hand? A hand does work. It manipulates things. The foot takes you to places. It subdues things. Right? This is a symbolism for the subduing of things underfoot. And so the hand is—you manipulate the things when you're there. But somebody, something has to get you there. The feet take you there, and the hand manipulates. It works with. It uses those things. They're different functions and together they're far more useful than separate. And if the ear should say because I am not an ear, sorry, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? This idea of separateness because of gifting is what's being attacked here. So the ear hears and considers. It's relational. It makes it so that you can interact and communicate with others. The eye is seeing and analyzing, navigating, choosing. And so... You know, you have this idea of if you work with other people, it's going to slow you down. You can't choose to just do whatever you want all the time. If you just work by yourself, you can't get nearly as much done. And so what we have here pointed to is this preference of simply choosing what you want versus the idea of interacting with others, hearing, listening, building relationship. And so to deny the unity with the body, to not have those things, neither one will do nearly as much by themselves. And so the unity working together the utility of each is increased. If you are a person who is particularly decisive and analytical, you will find that people don't really like you. They will find you annoying. They will find that you are someone who picks at nets and also is impatient, generally speaking, and that in making decisions, you leave other people behind. If you are a listener and you carefully consider others and their opinions, and how they feel about the situation, (laughs) then you will find that people who are decisive often feel like you don't get anything done. And so there is this need for each other, because without the other, there is a shattering, schismatic tendency, or there is a tendency to not be decisive and not get things done. And so we need each other to deal with these things. Smelling is brought up. Verse 17, if the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? And so now there's something else going in. And so this sort of relates to the fact that when things start to go bad, they tend to stink. One of the things that helps you to realize that something is starting to go bad is the smell. And so it's a sense that tells us if something is decaying or something sweet or filthy or clean. These are tendencies for the smell. And so you think about the utility of these senses and how they help each other out. And so you can listen to the point of frustration, you can decide, and you can also at the same time have a sort of death that's creeping in. And so these senses all help each other to detect things and to be careful to not drop off useful activities. Differentiation is necessary for the effectual division of labor. Separate skills and weaknesses in finite creatures is necessary for that to occur. And cooperation allows the weaknesses to be minimized and the strengths to be maximized. And so, verse 18, But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleases. And if they were all of one member, sorry, and if they were all one member, where would the body be? And the body would be largely ineffective. But God has designed the body to take over the world. God has designed the body to take over the world. And so he has given us all the parts that are necessary so that we can effectively work together to fill the earth with the knowledge of God. Verse 20. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Hands are much more useful when you can see. And eyes are much more useful when you have hands. They allow you to get work done and to do it well and to do it wisely. And this is going to relate to the principle of steering that comes up as a gift later on. How well can you steer a ship if you can't see? And how well can you steer it if you don't have hands? And so the two of them working together, this is setting up the listing out of additional gifts. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. The head can't get anywhere without the feet, and the feet subdue. I have no need of you. Or again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. which Which is weaker, the head or the feet? In what way? And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. Remember we talked about that last time, this idea that the people who are in higher authority, they serve the people in lower authority, and that's a bestowal of honor, taking those who are most honored and using them to serve those who are less honored, and that's an honor to them. So the people who have the higher honor exist to serve the people in lower honor. So which one is more honored again? And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. So I I, I get to be up here kind of immodestly trouncing around my various thoughts and just laying it out for you. More modest parts who are not up here speaking. There is a display of that modesty. The covering of heads by women is an example of the display of that modesty. And so this idea of modesty... And weakness and apparent lower honor, they all fit together in a way that ends up transferring honor, giving honor, giving service. And so we told, but God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it. That there should be no schism, or division in the body. The, the lack of schism, we don't separate over the, I have this gifting club. And we also don't have a functional schism by claiming to have unity and then failing to work together. But that the members should have the same care for one another. But that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So... A part of this functional unity is weeping with those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice because of a unity of interest in the kingdom. And that unity of interest in the kingdom allows us to care about each other and to realize that we are parts of the same body. Verse 27. Now, you are the body of Christ and members individually, and God has appointed these in the church. And so now we think about particular ministries, right? First apostles, second prophets, third teachers. After that, miracles, then gifts of healings, We've got like one out of five still. Right? For the, we're not batting too great on the first five. The first, the first five, we've got one of them still. Right? First apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings. Helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. We're going up for a while. Helps and administrations still continue. But the varieties of tongues, not so much. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No. Are all teachers? No. Are all workers of miracles? No. Yes, right? Who's with me? No. All workers of miracles? No. Do all have gifts of healings? No. Do all all speak with tongues? No. Do all interpret? No. But earnestly desire the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. So the best gifts, there's a hierarchy of gifting here. Apostles have ceased. We have the apostolic word in the scriptures. Prophets have ceased. We have the prophetic word in the scriptures. Teachers are ongoing. The office of elder, the office of teacher, pastor, bishop, they are the same office. And in that, they fulfill those various purposes. The title elder reminds us of the maturity of the officer. The title of teacher reminds us of the prophetic work of teaching the prophetic word, not by adding new words, but by understanding and teaching what the prophetic word says. The word pastor points to the priestly function of maintaining relationship, praying, the shepherding of people, the caring about maintaining holy hedges to have a society that retains its existence without blurring into the world. And a bishop, an overseer, is kingly. And so there's a, a mature prophet, priest, king is what is expected out of a teacher, out of an elder. The gift of miracles has ceased. And then we have the gifts uh, this, the language here, look at it, it says, the gifts of, and it changes, right? It goes from offices, apostles, prophets, teachers, or ministries, sorry, apostles, prophets, teachers, and miracles, and then it says, and here's a bunch of gifts, it's not the gifts of healings, okay, it's, it's gifts of healings, helps, administrations, and varieties of tongues, these are all considered in sort of this tier there together. And so, the gift of healing is not so much about being a miracle, because otherwise it would be a miracle. The point of the healing is not so much to be a sign. There were certainly sign healings, right? Jesus healed people as signs. But the gift of healing <coughs> as a way of reducing curse in the church, helping the church, blessing the church, during a time when there was... Much persecution to help the church to keep going on. I mean, you know, you look at Paul, and he gets stoned, beat, you know, all that kind of stuff. A lot of people think that he was repeatedly resurrected. You go, how can he go through some of these things and still survive being repeatedly stoned, right? Stoning is an execution method. Right, so if that's the case, okay, that's one miracle. If he's simply healed by people with gifts of healings, okay, that would be a way where he could continue on. But how do you expect Paul to repeatedly go through that sort of intensive persecution without having some sort of sustaining power from God and could keep going on? But right? he had a pretty tight schedule. He got a lot of things done and spoke to a lot of people. And so, in accomplishing all of these things, in the exercise of the gifts, there is this this ability to keep him going. And and you know, you guys might not be able to. Uh, supernaturally heal somebody who's got a teaching office but you can do other things that allow them to keep to a pretty tight schedule by helping them in other ways those other gifts are to enable that so that teachers can pray and teach and so you look at the gift of healing having ceased but the, the gift of helps is ongoing now i have here a quote from anthony thistleton great name And his commentary on the first epistle to the Corinthians. This is a very long and detailed commentary. The dot, dot, dots that you find are me cutting out a lot of stuff. And when you look at this, he talks about this one word, okay? So these are commentaries on one word so far. The part you've got here that's laid out is him talking about one word, and the dot, dot, dots are cutting out stuff talking about the one word. So this word, this translated helps, you have on page 5 the Greek for it laid out, and in a strict sense it means helps, plural. Now historically the church has associated this term with the work of the deacon. You find that especially uh, in a lot of commentators, and I think that's included, but I don't think it's strictly limited to that. I think that one of the things that's counted in helps, so the helps here, I, I've, I've added the bold, okay? So, so the bolding is, is my emphasis along with the underlining. And so here's what I think are the key things to take away in my research on it. First of all, the helps are kinds of help. They're kinds of administrative support. They are helpful deeds. It includes the ministry of the deacons. You might talk about support staff, administrative support, administering funds, and so, when you look at all these things, the other thing that you might think about, for example, is the Holy Spirit has given to us in the Word of God moderators of councils. That's an administrative function. That's an administrative function. That could be under here. It may be in the next word, which is translatable to steering. Okay, but you have this idea of, of administrative help. And then clerks of councils or scribes who take notes, who, who track that information. That's all stuff that needs to happen. You have a court, and the court makes a decision, and nobody writes it down, and two months later, somebody's like, so, just to be clear, when we made this decision, was it this or that, and we go, I have no idea at all, because we didn't write it down. That would be a totally inept functioning of a court. And so writing things down allows for the administrative efficiency and recording of decisions. So, This would be an example of that help. So you have moderators, you have clerks of courts, you have deacons, you have helping work in general, and this idea of support staff type activity and the management of funds. These are all things, some of those overlap with deacons, and some of them are things that other people can do, and some of them are things that are done by some elders. And so all that work there, This is necessary to support the teaching. The teaching is the principal thing. And you know what we do? We worship to maintain that teaching and to have our actions line up with the teaching and to make it so that we maintain the administration that God has given as a holy society. And in addition to that, the government of the church helps to maintain the worship and that teaching. And so this functioning is necessary to maintain a society. If you just have somebody teaching and you don't have worship and you don't have government, It's very quickly going to become corrupt. It's very quickly going to not be a church. And so those things are necessary. They are appointed by God, given to us by the Lord Jesus Christ as the king of the church. And so this work of helps is absolutely necessary. And it supports the going out and teaching. Then you go to the next term, and it's translated administrations. And this is an ongoing gift. And so again here, the dot, dot, dots are cutting out much. And so this is talking about the ability to formulate strategies, to govern, to steer, to pilot, to guide. It's a metaphor to somebody steering a ship. I think one of the things I cut out here is some of the ways that Plato used that analogy, using the same word, for example. You can find this in all sorts of ancient writings using this term, and people talking about statesmen steering the ship of state, for example. So you, you have this idea of steering as an activity, and it's, in the King James, translated as governments. Now, this governing and strategic thinking, this ability to deal with governance of a social order, is an important gift that allows for the administrative functions to go well, that allows for the teaching to occur, that allows people to have what they need, but it is something that is a part of the set of giftings that are listed below teaching. Now, this word, go to page 6, I have a commentary here by uh, Charles Hodge. Charles Hodge is an excellent commentator. His commentaries are first rate. And when you have these commentaries and you look at what Charles Hodge has to say, typically he is somebody who is going to give you a lot of insight on what's meant. Charles Hodge in this particular point makes a common Presbyterian error. Okay, so here's the here's the quote. Those with gifts of administration. This is governments, that is, people who had the gift and authority to rule. As this gift and office are distinguished from those of teachers, it cannot be understood to mean sorry, it cannot be understood to mean the Presbyter or Overseers who are required to be able to teach it seems to refer clearly to a class of officers distinct from teachers. That is, rulers, or as they are called in the Reformed churches, ruling elders. This is one of the classic texts to justify the office of ruling elder as distinct from teaching elder. Now, let's think about this argument for just a minute. If we view this text as justifying an office, then... We should also have the office of miracle worker, healer, helper, governor. You now, the helper, people go, yeah, deacons, miracle workers, yee. You get some high pitched noises from people in the reform circles thinking about that one. Healers, too. Oh, we talk to you go, maybe doctors. They'll have a hospital run by deacons. That's not what it's talking about, right? So nobody makes that argument. But that. That idea of that you get an office out of this, it proves too much. If this proves the office of ruling elder, then why don't the other gifts prove offices too? A gift does not an office make. A gift does not an office make. So it proves too much. And the next gift, which would make a fantastic office, varieties of tongues. Right, you have the tongue speaker. Right? This guy, your job is to come in and make all sorts of sounds. This person has to speak in a foreign language. So again, this does not make an office. So we get into chapter 13, and we go from the offices, so we go from the giftings that are uh, listed there, and now we're getting into this question of the continuation of things. Chapter 13, verse 1. Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or clanging cymbal. So what we're talking about, chapter 12, we're talking about gifts of the Spirit. Chapter 13, we're continuing to talk about gifts of the Spirit, and what we're doing is we're thinking about the proper usage of them. So you can say, though I have a particular gift, if I don't have the gift of love, then the gift I've got becomes useless. And with tongues, in particular... If you're thinking about tongues, Paul is going to make the point that if you don't differentiate sounds, instruments become useless to communicate information. Right? You have a trumpet, and you can tell, are we getting an order to advance, are we getting an order to retreat, or to hold based upon the differentiation of sounds. And if there is no differentiation of sounds, you can't tell what order is being given. So, clanging cymbals, not very good at playing different notes. Sounding brass. Not very good at playing different notes. The point of these is, if you can speak in tongues of men and of angels, just any of them, all the languages, however high and grand, whatever language you want, if you don't have love, if you're not actually caring about the well-being of your neighbor or the glory of God, if you don't love God or neighbor, you are going to be useless. You can speak in all the language that you want. In every language. And you can be useless in every nation. So, speaking in the the tongues of men and angels, without love, makes you useless. Love is defined as, and we have the word agape, that's the much vaunted charity love this term is referring to the desire for the well-being of the object. So, in other words, I want your good. If I love you, I'm seeking your good. If I love you, I'm seeking your good. And if I'm going to seek your good, I need to know what the good is. All right? So now, we need wisdom. And if I love God, I'm seeking the good of God. And God doesn't gain anything from me. What is His mission? His mission is to cause Himself to be known. It is to glorify His name. So if I love God, I care about His glory. If I love my neighbor, I'm going to seek to help him grow in the knowledge of God because that's his good. So I can use tongues, but if I'm not using them to edify people, that's useless. That's the sounding brass and the clanging cymbal. Verse 2, And though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith So that I could remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. Okay, so prophecy. Let's say I understand all the mysteries and I understand all the knowledge. All the mysteries would be all the things that were once hidden that are now revealed. All the knowledge would be all the stuff that's revealed, period. So I can have all the revealed knowledge, all that information. I can understand all of that content. And if I do not care about the glory of God, and I do not care about the good of my neighbor, I will use it uselessly. I might accidentally do something useful for somebody. But I'm going to, as a general rule, be useless. If I don't have the objective of seeking your good, I'm not going to serve you very well. And if I don't have the objective of glorifying God, I'm not going to be a very useful servant to Him. So the love of God. Now the love of God also manifests itself in this. We're told, if you love me, what does Jesus say? Keep my commandments. This is love to obey God. The two great commandments are love God, love neighbor. We're told how to love God with the first four commandments. We're told how to love neighbor with the last six commandments. The law of God teaches us how we seek somebody's good. You go, I want your good. But if I seek your good and I give you poison, right? If if I if I want your good but I give you food you're allergic to, if I want your good and I'm constantly doing the opposite of what you want me to do to help you, those things are not useful. And so, with the absence of usefulness, without having a knowledge of the goal, and without having a knowledge of the means to get to the goal, you're useless. That's what love is. Love is the desire for the well-being of the object, and love is applying the law to do it. Now, think about this. The last one, faith, gets mentioned. And, and you might think, that's weird. I mean, if you have faith, isn't that the first part of the love of God? And does not that what generates love? Yeah, but what is it doing? It's taking faith and applying it in a narrow way to prayer. If you have amazing faith so that you could pray really well, so you could remove mountains, if you pray to remove the wrong mountain, you might cause a lot of trouble. Do you care about God's glory? Do you love God as you pray? Do you care about your neighbor? So you're praying in such a way as to seek his good. And so, praying with great faith, without concern for the well being of others, you're not necessarily going to pray for them. There are many needs of many people in our congregation. And the only thing that could possibly persuade you to take time out of your own day and to pray for the needs of those people is a love for them. Now, if I have the gift of prophecy, if I have all faith, But I don't have love, I am nothing. It's obviously not a literal nothing. But it's, I am useless. That's the point. Verse 3. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. Or you can give things to people and not love them. You can give things to people and not love them. Giving things to people in a way that seeks their good involves things like discipling them in the process. Giving it to them in the name of Jesus. It involves giving to the worthy poor. Trying to take those who are unwilling to work and trying to pull them into working. There are things you do that aren't just giving property. And so, it is possible to give all sorts of things, all of your property to the poor, and to not love them. The goal and the means have to be From Scripture. And giving your body to be burned, right? You can go out and you can be a martyr for the faith and die in the fires. And you could do it foolishly. But it might be your duty in a certain scenario because you have provision responsibility for a family, or because you have some other leadership duties to avoid persecution. It might be your responsibility to flee or to fight in some scenario. And if you give yourself to be burned, it may feel very courageous, but and it may be very zealous, but it can be misdirected. And so there's a responsibility to be careful to not throw your life away. And so these acts by themselves are not sufficient. These gifts by themselves are not sufficient. They require that we know what is good, and that we apply the means of the law of God in pursuing them. Page seven, love suffers long and is kind, love does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in the truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, and is frequently taken out of context to talk about marriage. The point here is not talking specifically about marital love. Now, this should be applied in marriage or it should be applied in rearing children and in the church context. But this is talking about the general application of love. That if you have love, if you desire the well-being of a person, if you desire the well-being of the glory of God, then what you're going to do is you're going to keep the mission in mind. And as you keep the mission in mind, You're going to be willing to suffer a lot. You're going to take stuff on the chin to accomplish the goal. You're going to be kind. You're going to be doing actions that are intended for the person's good. You're going to be doing things, spending time and effort, seeking to help that person. You are going to not envy, but rejoice in a non-covetous way for them. Rather than parading yourself, you will manifest a type of modesty. It's not puffed up. And we're told earlier on that knowledge puffs up, which doesn't mean that knowledge is bad, but you have to be aware of it. And the way that you manage to deal with the puffed upness that comes from knowledge is love. If you get a lot of knowledge, which is how you pursue God, there's going to be a temptation to think, I'm so much better than you, I know so much more than you, Why should I listen to you? Why should I spend my time on you? And so this call to not be puffed up and to not parade self are both associated with knowledge. You can just parade knowledge without having it be knowledge that is useful to other people. And you can be arrogant. Humility makes it so that With much knowledge, you take the knowledge and you use it to help the immature and the weak to pull them up. Love makes it so that highly knowledgeable people catechize newborns in the faith. Love makes it so that they don't parade the things they want to be talking about on the edges of knowledge where they're studying something that the other person has never heard of before. Love makes it so they engage on the elementary principles of the faith with people who need the elementary principles of the faith. Love causes people who are learned to organize forms of words meant to maximize learning as introductory tools. Rather than a puffed upness, it looks for opportunity to serve. And so I encourage you to pursue wisdom, to pursue knowledge, and I encourage you to love God and to love your neighbor by humbly using that knowledge to spread the knowledge of God in ways that are helpful to your neighbor. It doesn't behave rudely, it's not cutting people off unnecessarily. It takes the time to listen to what people have to say. You know, we all have the experience of thinking that we know what people are going to say and stopping and listening and hearing somebody out is the opposite of that rudeness. It is an act of humility and service. It doesn't seek its own. Does this mean it's wrong to seek your self-interest? No. We're commanded to seek our self-interest. Not seeking your own means you don't seek your self-interest with the exclusion of other people's interests. Instead, you take the time to consider their interests and you seek to take it into account. You seek to help them. You seek to think about how can I improve my situation and theirs rather than just improving mine and hurting them. It is not provoked. Right? So in order to have love, you need to avoid people who will provoke you. All right? There's two ways we can talk about being provoked. Somebody can externally provoke you. And you can avoid being provoked internally. So love goes into lots of situations where there are provocations. And love takes those provocations without being provoked. So it takes on burdens of getting hit in the chin. Of getting smacked on the cheek. And it turns the other cheek. And it doesn't keep a long list of accounts. It doesn't think of evils all the time. It doesn't always remember all the ways that people offended it. Love seeks to remove those offenses by forgiveness and then eventually by forgetting. The forgiveness and not dwelling on makes it so that you tend to forget. If we all remembered all of the ways that all of us had offended each other, That would be an insufferable existence. Love does not rejoice in iniquity. It doesn't smile about accomplishing things through wicked means. It doesn't sit there and rejoice in having done evil to get the goal done. But it rejoices in the truth, even when it's costly. Even when it's hard to say and you lose something for saying it, if there's a duty to say it, it rejoices in the truth. Love bears all things. In other words, it carries burdens for other people. Love believes all things. It believes the whole revealed religion, but that's the love of God. But it, it believes positive things when there's doubt, it gives a, t- a charitable interpretation. It hopes all things. It hopes for the best. It's willing to pour out sacrificially for the good of the neighbor and for the glory of God with the expectation that God will use it to bring about a good end and to cause good in the soul of the person served. And love endures all things. It grinds it out. It keeps going. It has fortitude. It keeps going. It has fortitude. It endures hardship in long-lasting effort. It runs and does not grow weary. Verse 8, love never fails. What does that mean? Is that, does that mean that love, human love always accomplishes the goal of human love? No. You can love people and weep over them and they can never turn back to you. When it says that love never fails, it's very specifically saying love does all this stuff and love will never end as a Holy Spirit gift. Love does all this stuff and it will never end as a Holy Spirit gift. But whether there are prophecies, they will fail. Is that saying that when there's a prophecy that it's not going to come true? No, it's saying they're going to cease. There's a certain point in time when there will no longer be prophecies. And that happened in 70, 80. Whether there are tongues, they will cease. That one's plain, easy to get. Whether there is knowledge, it will vanish away. And again, this is talking about supernatural gift of knowledge. It's not saying you're going to stop thinking truths. You're going to stop having faith, right? Faith is the knowledge of what God has revealed. It's not saying the knowledge is going to stop. It's saying that the gift of supernatural knowledge granting, which is a revelatory gift, it's going to vanish away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part. Okay, The knowledge, the tongues, the prophecies are all meant to communicate knowledge. We have knowledge in part, and we prophesy in part. Right, tongue speaking is just a type of prophesying. In a different language. So, the gifts of knowledge, we have partial knowledge. The gifts of prophecy, we have partial prophecy before the completion of the scriptures. But when that which is perfect or complete has come, right? You have partial versus complete. When the complete has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And what I have mentioned in this text before is people try to interpret this to mean when Jesus comes, which is just you're just flying that out of nowhere. It's the reverse of a rapture. You just you're just Reverse rapturing Jesus into the text. He's not being talked about. What you have here is revelation. We're talking about revelation. We're not talking about the second coming of Jesus Christ. But when that which is complete has come, then that which is in part will be done away. And one additional piece of evidence that this is not Jesus is the word complete or perfect there is in the neuter. It's not masculine. And if we're referring to Christ, you'd expect it to be masculine. Verse 11. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. This is going to the maturity-immaturity principle. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things, the immature things. For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. So, the immaturity of revelation, of partial revelation, is like the immaturity of the church. And the mature replaces the immature. The man replaces the child. The canon of Scripture that's complete is the mature thing. We see her in a mirror dimly in the time of a partial revelation. And we're told that before Moses, for example, we are told that other prophets saw dim visions. Okay, in the mirror, think about the, the law of God as a mirror. They're dim visions. But Moses was said to speak to God face to face like one man speaks to another, like one man speaks to a friend. But it also we're also told explicitly that Moses didn't actually look upon the face of God because he had to hide in a rock to not look at the face of God because if he looked at the face of God, he would die. So it's a figure of speech. What's the figure of speech? The figure of speech is he spoke to God plainly. And when we have the complete canon, we have a complete plain scripture set. A complete, plain, revelatory set. So now, with an incomplete scripture, it's like looking into a mirror dimly. The complete scriptures is like face-to-face communication. Now I know in part, but then I shall know, just as I also am known. And so this asserts the idea that we can have the full counsel of God And that relates to the idea that God knows all of our counsel, and he has revealed all of his counsel. Does this mean that we're going to have an infinite amount of knowledge about God? No. We are finite. We are going to learn. We will never have infinite. We can never complete an infinite series of learnings. You can learn really, really fast, and you're not going to have all of the learning in your mind. You will learn forever, but you're never going to complete the infinite series. And so, when you have this knowledge, it is the complete knowledge It's the complete canon being given to us. This is prophesied in multiple places in the scripture. Daniel 9 is the one that I've spent the most time on with you all, uh, variously in the study at my house or in other conversations. It's a valuable proof text pointing to the destruction of the temple as the time when prophet and vision cease. That verse, verse 12, is the main one that gets used to try to support the idea of this being about Jesus. They go, okay, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then we're going to see him face to face. Okay, are you literally looking in a mirror dimly right now at Jesus? Are you literally looking in a mirror that is dim and seeing Jesus' face? No, it's a figure of speech, right? So do you think the face to face is literally looking at Jesus' face? Or is it the same sort of figure of speech? Additionally, the idea of Knowing in part, but then knowing just as you're also known, it's a common doctrine amongst evangelicals to believe that as soon as you die, you will know everything. That is false. If you know everything, you're God. When you die, you don't become God. If you know everything, you're God. You won't know everything when you die. Verse 13. Now, abide faith, hope, love, these three. But the greatest of these is love. The gift of faith, the gift of hope, and the gift of love will last forever. Even in the resurrected state, you will believe the truth. You will have hope and confident desire for the good that will occur in the future. And you will seek the good of your neighbor, and you will seek the glory of God. Faith, hope, and love abide forever. There is never an end to faith, hope, and love. The principal objection to that is people say, well, faith turns into sight and hope turns into I've obtained what I hope in. Faith, how you define it, is not believing in things you don't see. Okay? Faith is understanding and believing certain thought content. And Christian faith is believing the revealed content from the mind of God. Faith will always carry on. Hope is a confident desire. Confident is a, a desire confident means with faith. Okay? Hope is a desire that you have with faith that it will be accomplished. And when all of the things we're hoping for, looking forward to Christ now are accomplished, you're going to be on the day of judgment hoping that the Lord Jesus Christ gives you rewards. And when he promises them to you, he's going to give them to you. And you're going to have that fulfilled. And when he gives them to you, you're going to hope that you can use them in a way that glorifies him and that you enjoy. And you're going to do that. And you're going to continue to steward those things, the rewards that you receive. And you're going to continue to have confident desires. And they will continue to be fulfilled. It will not end. And love, you will continue to love. You will have a pure love for God and a pure love for your neighbor in the glorified state. So comments, questions, objections from the voting members and those with speaking rights.